the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. Delight to have in studio Lewis Hallman. He usually joins us with his dad, Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, when he's in town, but he is not in town. So we have Lewis Hallman with us flying the plane solo, or at least perhaps with me, if we can call it a biplane. It is nice to have you, Lewis. He is the managing director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Insight is I-N-C-I-T-E. Analytics is analytics. LLC is spelled the way it sounds. How are you, sir? Uh, I am always doing well and always better to see you, my friend. Thanks. Monster Energy. Is that what you're bringing in today? Uh, You know, I like to uh, uh, take most of my my calories via liquid and a lot of caffeine via Monster. It's It's, uh, it's a bit of a problem. It matches your shirt, this black can, (laughs) the green stripes, and your shirt matches your shoes. This is all very cloak and dagger. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a coordinated individual, I guess. What can I say? All very chameleon. <laughs> um, yeah, we were just talking. You know, we'll get into some stuff here in a moment. We were just talking before the show. We were joking around with Bill, who's producing us today, Mr. Bill. And um, we were talking about this line that has now become acceptable um, as, a, as a conversation stopper, as a question stopper. Whenever you don't you can't get or obtain a service or a product that you used to get as a matter of routine without thinking? The answer is invariably COVID. Well, because of COVID uh, or because of what we went through with COVID. And it, it makes no sense. It, and and you still hear it from time to time, whether it's a food shortage or whether when you're flying and you can't get a certain product like a, a lemon for your drink or something like that. Well, because of COVID. And, it just, and we're all supposed to kind of just accept this. Um, it's still it's still going on, and it's become a really good excuse for people not doing things. And I don't know what the supply chain issues still are, Lewis, but it's it's a it's a good excuse for things just to continue to ongoingly suck around here. Well, on, on the idea of the supply chain issues, you know, those have more or less been worked out. If anything, you know, one one probably be better served arguing that the recent supply chain issues are from things like the Houthis shooting cruise missiles in the stri- in the, the Straits of Hormuz, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, and other logistical complications shipping, shipping from those issues. issues. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so the, the notion that COVID is still this specter that looms large over our world is, I think, uh, a specious one. It is a an absolute cop out from those who yeah, don't out. want to uh, admit their own failings with mm-hmm. regards to the problems that they're dealing with, with regards to the the leadership challenges that yeah. they face. Yeah, no, and but I, I you know, we're we're going to raise flags here where we where we need to. The New York Times uh, has a piece out this past week: COVID variant JN1, what to know about reinfections and vaccines. Um, they're 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 going to make another show. I think I think we're not. 
we've not quite put the steak in the in the in into the beast just yet. I don't think we've poured salt over the ground here in which we buried this thing quite yet. Well, we're in an election year, and so that does suggest that uh, we'll see an elevated level of pageantry, you know, irrespective of what happens. Yeah. Uh, you add that to potentially a rocky economy and housing or, uh, unaffordability, elevated interest rates, potentially business depression, things like that, uh, that are are deliberately uh, uh, downstream consequences of government policy. And then suddenly the specter of, oh, hey, guys, look out, COVID is coming is a very convenient political excuse. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I and I one of the interesting things I just I was noticing this on um, on uh, some of the social media sites, uh, the American Red Cross blood donations, when you fill out your forms and stuff, they want to know whether you're vaccinated, because if so, you need to make a few phone calls. That's a tell of sorts, isn't it? That's a tell if something is completely safe. I don't know. Maybe it's not. You know, I, I honestly am, am not up to speed with their paperwork enough. <laughs> you keep your blood to yourself. Okay. I, I, I do. I do. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I am not charitable in that regard, I suppose, to my, uh, to my family. <laughs> Talk to me about what's on your mind. What have you been thinking about lately? So – I've been reading, uh, as you know, a lot of psychology, and I've also been, uh, in recent weeks, sort of uh, supplementing that with an increasing diet of classics, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, which I'm sure my dad would be thrilled to hear. Why? Uh, uh, he, he just always has a, a sort of a strange point of pride about his children knowing the classics. Oh, okay. Um, part of the, him being the headmaster of our school and, okay. and, and really appreciating all of that. Um, okay. But for me, uh, you know, given that... that when we come here with dad, it's always tempting to, to get really into the weeds about current policy. And now, now that he's not here, I think if, if you'll permit me, I wouldn't mind running loose a little bit. And so sure. what I propose that we talk about is uh, love and war okay. as, the, as the, the ancients thought of it and how it then impacts our lives okay. now. Shall we start with love sure. or war? Let's start with love. Awesome. So I'm going to make a really weird claim right off the bat. And that claim is that love and relationships have nothing to do with one another. Okay. And the reason I say that is that a relationship is the medium through which value is exchanged between people. Relationships have structure, right? They have a definition. They have compromises and they have responsibilities, definitionally. Uh, They're also consistent potentially through time. Love, on the other hand, is nothing like this. Love uh, actually uh, abjures relationships. It abhors boundaries and borders. You know, love is this all-encompassing thing to which we are held prisoner. Uh, You know, if you think about how the Greeks talked about falling in love, it's the notion of being shot by Cupid's arrow, right? What's funny about that is no one really likes being shot. And yet... In, in popular culture, we have this, I think, a growing notion, sort of the Disneyfication of, of romance, maybe, that, that romantic love in that sense, right, the Cupid's arrow sense, should be the cornerstone of every relationship that we have. And I, I, I think that that might be part of at the heart of what is driving young people entirely astray with, with finding relationships and moving through the world. The, the, the notion of love as sort of the, the the last point on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And if you think of our society going growing and ever, ever more sophisticated, moving away from having to all of us be subsistence farmers to then 
finally thinking about other things and an increasing proportion of us moving up Maslow's hierarchy with our work in our lives to, to think about philosophy and art and culture in a way that we didn't do 2,000 years ago. And so with this, with this affluence of modernity, we have so much like we don't have to think about relationships for food as the means of transacting value in that way. And we are left to pursue our self-actualization. And in some sense, love is a, is, is a form of that. It is, in some sense, the highest form of, of, of that. But what's remarkable is that uh, it has this, this totally encapsulating uh, uh, power over us. And indeed, if you really love someone, you should only be in a relationship for them definitionally if it is the very best thing for them else they should be elsewhere, right? Love is about sacrifice. And indeed, the measure of one's love is the measure of the degree that one is willing to sacrifice for their beloved. We can even look at it. It doesn't necessarily need to be in the realm of romantic love, but we can see this in the Christian example, right? Christ's sacrifice on earth is his expression of love that then is the salvation of mankind in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mostly Christian. Right. That's fair. In the Christian tradition. Yes. <laughs> but okay. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry. It, that's okay. That Judeo-Christian been, is a shorthand been, right. for Western we, right, in my right, head. Right, right, so, yeah, right, good point. Okay. Thank you. No, good, okay. good clarification. It's okay. Thank you, sir. It's okay. Um, Christ's sacrifice, though, is, right. is the ultimate expression of love. Right. Love being the point that you're making is based on a sacrifice. Absolutely. Okay. And so— you know, we can think about this as well, you know, with the, with the origins of of romantic love as we think about it, really coming down to us in, in sort of the, the Western tradition yeah. from the chivalric codes. Yep. And what's interesting about those is those codes, the chivalric codes, they were made during the Crusades for knights whose lieges had left to the Holy Land and right. who were basically sitting around the court and uh, interacting with, with the often married women uh, whose, whose husbands were out on crusade. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about, about that example of courtly love is that definitionally it's supposed to be unobtainable. Okay. The notion that one's beloved is in a relationship with someone else and perpetually unobtainable is a way of keeping that game in that pre-modern sense going as long as possible. And so it's, I, I, I think that... Uh, we inherit a lot of momentum culturally when thinking about love and okay. relationships without questioning it. And so part of what I want to, want to do today is sort of unpack that a okay. bit and see how we are deluding or blinding ourselves to, to how the world works. Good. It's a week after Valentine's Day, so we'll pursue that, and then we'll talk war because that's ever with us as well. Lewis Hallman is my guest, taking on the big things. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you from the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studios, brought to you by our good friends at Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals, Midas Gold Group. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Based on uh, some of the things I was saying in my monologue earlier, uh, he wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about the whole notion of love, particularly in its regard to relationships, and uh, in that we live in a time of war as well. We're going to get to that aspect of it and the intersection of them both. Uh, go ahead and keep unfolding your point about love uh, if you want to, Lewis, or shift to the war part. Either way, I can, I can track it and Absolutely. circle back. So, so we were talking about the, the notion of, of love, how, how the ancients thought of it, and I was making the excruciatingly strange point, I suspect, that love and relationships— have nothing to do with one another. Um, 
And again, the, the sort of the rationale here is that relationships are structured uh, uh, and they are the medium through which value is exchanged between people, right? Neighbors have a relationship through which they transact. The security of the block, maybe the occasional power tool or a cup of sugar, whatever it is, uh, uh, a married couple will have a, a transaction of value inherent in their relationship, you know. Um, uh, someone's looking after the kids, someone's doing the, you know, taking out the trash. All of these things about about the, the, the small transactions that make our life easier, those are the bedrocks of a successfully negotiated relationship. Love, however, is nothing like this. Love is a powerful hurricane-like force. And indeed, as the Greeks said, uh, uh, when you are shot by Cupid's arrow, that's not something that you have a choice in the matter of. And so... When one falls in love, uh, uh, one then, uh, because of the nature of love, is only able to to pursue a relationship with the beloved, uh, as I was saying, um, when it is in the, the beloved's best possible interest. And shy of that, no luck for you. Mm-hmm. So on this point, um, it's very interesting that, that marriage, again, is originally created uh, uh you know, without this notion of romantic love, um, and, and, and romantic love doesn't enter the picture at all with our discussions of, of marriage. Uh, although marriage and uh, the church have a a different relationship than many people think. Indeed, marriage uh, in the Catholic Church did not become a sacrament until I believe the 1400s or so, very very late in the game, uh, about the time that the Pope uh, was actually prosecuting a crusade against other Catholics that they were then deemed heretics, the Cathars. And the whole argument that this was about was actually about the nature of marriage. The Cathars believed that this is a fallen world, and so uh, the idea of, of chaining yourself to someone who is also fallen uh, is not a route to spiritual salvation, and nothing that we do in this life matters, and so we should hold for the next life. That was the Cathar position. And the Catholic position that evolved uh, that then ensconced marriage as a sacrament is something to the effect of that, yes, indeed, this is a fallen world, and the most Christ-like thing that one can do in this falling world is to love someone who doesn't deserve it, another fallen person. And so marriage in the Catholic tradition is an emulation of, of Christ's love in that respect, although confined to sort of the, the, the other party. Um, and so what that what that gives us then is a a notion of relationships as being something that is is negotiated something that is found and not something that that we're then subject to a random feeling now some people i think would imagine that this takes all of the fun out of relationship right you don't get the butterfly feeling of, of falling in love and that that seems to be culturally at least what a lot of people are chasing um I'm not sure that that is a that is a good idea, right? The butterfly feeling isn't stable, and uh, sadly, it's fickle. And again, if it's not something you have control over, it's very difficult to found a relationship on. Let me um, press on a few things here that you said that I wrote down as you were talking, because it relates in large part to some of what I was talking about in my monologue with the declining marriage rates. Oh yeah. And, and I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a strong indicator as to why that is. You wrote down and said something that does sound shocking upon first hearing it, 
But on examination, there's something perhaps deeper we need to grapple with. I believe you said relationships transcend love. I believe you said that. If you didn't uh, and disagree with it, say so. I I would say love transcends relationships. The other way around. Love transcends relationships. Okay. If if you are in love with someone truly and you are married to someone else, you would pursue the beloved irrespective of the relationships that you have and have cultivated. Right? That is the prisoner hold that loves have on people. Right? To fall in love is to be subject to it. Uh, uh, as a force upon you, right? That's why we fall in love. Well, I guess what I'm thinking of is relationships or rather marriages, which are a form of relationship, that hold together even once love may have gone out the window for the sake of something else. Now we're back into the world of sacrifice. Sure. And that's its own form of love, isn't it? It's love of something greater, um, it may not be love of your spouse, but it's love of something, love of perhaps the way you want to raise your children, love of perhaps some greater message. The traditional vow is to hold from this day forward for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness, health, uh, love and cherish until parted by death. You can't control any of these things, right? probably. Uh, the cherished part you might be able to control, but most of these things you can't control, uh, perhaps the financial a little bit. But the other things tend to be out of one's control, but people do maintain the relationship for something greater, which in itself I'm just offering is a form of love because it is a form of sacrifice. Absolutely. And, it's and the absence of selfishness. So, so I think one of the things that, that – which, by the way, I think is one of the greatest predictors of di- – or one of the greatest issues in divorce. The Absolutely. idea that you get rid of this sacrifice and you become so very selfish or any relationship. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so I, I think the notion of um, love in, in, in a relationship, right, it's, it's tremendously rare that I, – I, I think that uh, you actually – marry someone that you are in love with most of the time um, because love is also a, a, a fragile thing. And again, it does have that self-sacrificing nature. Very rarely are you the absolute best thing for somebody else, right? That is a shockingly rare outcome. And, and there is that element of selflessness in love, I think, that, that then demands that. But you know, we, we have this notion of chasing the feeling, and, and you mentioned the the decline in marriage yeah. rates. I, I think I'd really like to talk about that because okay. one of the things that's been happening as well is that the sort of the typical exchange between men and women has been is is very different now. It yep. looks very different. Yep. It functions very differently yep. now than it used to. Yep. And I'd like to, if I may, in the next segment, set the table on what has changed Good. between men and women. Good what used to sort of be the case and and what that means sort of going forward for us. Okay. We'll be right back with more from Lewis Hallman. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Seth Liebson. Lewis Hallman is my guest. We're discussing love and war, and uh, we'll get to the war in a moment. On the love front, Lewis was going to talk about it in the perspective of marriage and how it's changed over time. And I always like to start as a baseline with uh, 1954 movie Rear Window, where Thelma Ritter is the home nurse to Jimmy Stewart, who thinks he's in love with Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly is definitely in love with Jimmy Stewart. Her name is Lisa Fremont in the movie. But he doesn't think he wants to marry her. And Thelma Ritter, 
of the previous generation than Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly offers this up. Look, Mr. Jeffries, I'm not an educated woman, but I can tell you one thing. When a man and a woman see each other and like each other, they ought to come together. Wham. Like a couple of taxis on Broadway and not sit around analyzing each other like two specimens in a bottle. There's an intelligent way to approach marriage. Intelligence. Nothing has caused the human race so much trouble as intelligence. <laughs> Modern marriage. Now, we've progressed emotionally. Baloney. Once it was see somebody, get excited, get married. Now it's read a lot of books, fence with a lot of four-syllable words, psychoanalyze each other until you can't tell the difference between a petting party and a civil service exam. There you go, Lewis. Is that what's happened to marriage? We've over-psychologized it, made it too complicated? Or the other way around? You know, I I actually think that on some level that's true, but I think she actually mostly has it backwards. Okay, Exactly backwards. Go ahead. I, I would argue that there there are really uh, obviously there's more than two, but I'm going to talk about two main factors that have really changed the way that relationships between men and women have been altered uh, okay. uh, in the last say hundred years or so. Okay. Now the first of those is the introduction of uh, widespread birth control. Okay. Previously, uh, you know, with uh, uh, premarital sex, uh, the risk of pregnancy is very high, and so. It basically didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Not not to say that it didn't happen, but as far as the demographic effect of the population, uh, uh, it is so costly for women to uh, be an unwed uh, uh, mother in society, particularly in pre-modern times before the advent of Social Security or any sort of type of support mechanism. Mm-hmm. And indeed, society then sees the, the unwed mother and, and the children as their burden, uh, rightly, in some sense. And so discourages the behavior as, as, as much as possible. And or there so, would be a shotgun wedding. Right, or there would be a shotgun okay. wedding, okay. and then the, the issue would then be privatized right. once more. Right. Uh, and so that's one big change, is the advent of birth control. Now, what that did is it meant that the cost of premarital sex went down. And so some women, usually, uh, initially, I would imagine, uh, probably l- lower on the value marketplace, would start offering premarital sex to get the men that they want. Um, Men, by contrast to women, hold the gateways to relationships and long-term resources, while women hold the gateways to physical intimacy. And this trade-off has and probably will always exist at the bases of our, of our relationships. It's rather how we're wired. Um, the second thing that has really changed fundamentally is the way that women work in society. Uh, we are probably at the first point in history when a 20-something unmarried woman makes more than a 20-something unmarried man. Previously, this this just didn't happen for a wide variety of reasons. And they Some, certainly dominate a lot of industries that men no longer do. Right. Um, you know, and college degrees. That that is absolutely correct. I believe the the matriculation rates from college are now I think 60, it's 60 40. 40. Yeah. Right. Correct. Right. Now the the issue, the key issue underpinning all of this is the notion of what's called hypergamy. Do you know the term? No. Nope. All right. Hypergamy is the tendency of women to date across and up value hierarchies, okay. which is to say they want someone who is richer or more successful or you know some other uh, uh, attribute them. And they are bringing typically the youth and the beauty to the party, okay. while the, the man is typically bringing resources and status. That is the age-old exchange that we are working with. Okay. And women then, they, they will date someone who is uh, uh, generally uh, more successful, 
uh, somewhere uh, up are. higher up. Yes, on and a higher ladder. The right. issue then happens that if the median woman is now earning more than the median man, uh-huh. what does that do to her prospects of being able to date someone who is more wealthy than her? Lowers them dramatically. Dramatically. All right, and so you, that, you, that's a huge point. So you see get. this also... In, we're not getting to war today. Oh, we're not. No. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to pick up on this when we come back. Now, Okay, now you've hit the bullseye. And this explains the crisis in marriage. Probably about 40% of it anyway. Lewis Holman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Lewis Hallman is my guest. We were going to do love and war. We're just going to do love. We'll save war for next week. I don't know what percentage, Mr. Bill, you're, you're smart about this. Maybe you actually know the statistic on this, Lewis Hallman. What percentage of our music is about love? It's interesting. Probably 90%. It's got to be at least half. It's, it's at least half. It's probably 90. It's anyway. Okay. So... We just, Part of the problem with marriage, right, where are the men? Where are the good men, the woman asks, right? Yeah. That's the question you've been hearing for like 20 years now. Where and who are they? And, and the, the interesting thing is that they're, they're where they've always been, but through our practice of socially subsidizing the lives of women statistically, either through uh, 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 child support, uh, uh, which largely is a good thing, but then also uh, through Title IX activities and educational subsidies – now that we have pushed women past the point of parity with men, which I recall was the goal all along of, of yep. such discrimination, right. if I recall the Sandra Day O'Connor ruling, uh, it is unconstitutional now, but we want to move to a point where we right. don't have to do it anymore, right. something like that, I'm yep. paraphrasing. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, and so uh, um, you know, we're, we're left to a point now where the systems that have been set up to advantage women, uh, women uh, uh, then lead them to a point where they are they – are unable or significantly less able to form meaningful, useful relationships. And the same is true of men. Uh, very, very harmful. So we, w- we were talking, I think, before the break of that, that notion of hypergamy. Right. And, and again – Finding something up the societal or social ladder. Right. And so this, this is – Social not always meaning money, but any number. It could be education. Dominance. Yeah, right. Physical skill, whatever. Things, right. So, so what, what, this actually is, a, is an interesting corollary uh, uh, here that, we, that I, I can explore if that's all right. So one of the, one of the pieces that comes along with this, right, there's, there's a question that always seems to come up stereotypically among particularly younger men of, of why do women always date jerks, right? Why do they always, you know – date people that are <laughs> usually this, said this, by a guy who's not dating the woman he's right, right. <laughs> looking at right, right, the, right. The, the, sort of the, the right. eternal you know frustrated nerd question <laughs> right, right? right one that I, I i will cop to having myself okay. significantly okay. earlier in my life all right uh and so what does she see in him right, right. And, and and so the reason that a woman might want to date a jerk is it's not that she's dating someone that is a jerk to her that she's dating someone that is a jerk to everyone but her someone that is Unstable and a bit psychopathic, but who is nice to you is someone that no outside force is going able to be able to beat or deter. Someone like that, even if they're, they're set upon by a larger force, will fight back. Someone who is wildly disagreeable will not go quietly into that good night. And that is tremendously attractive to women in an evolutionary environment where they are extremely vulnerable, bearing most of the costs of child care. I want to challenge one thought you had uttered, which is men are where they always were. 
I'm not sure I'm in full agreement with that. Okay. I think that there has been an ethic or an ethos for the past generation and a half, perhaps longer, summarized best perhaps by someone saying, you go, girl. And girls went. I mean, they have now really, as you were pointing out earlier with other statistics in education and certain professions, they have far outpaced men. Right. Men at the same time, I think two lines have crossed. I don't think they're the same men anymore that we used to that we used to see. I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot more, um, uh, shall we say, laziness, a lot more uh, dependence. A lot more arrested development. You, a lot. Go ahead. You, you absolutely are, are are picking up on some some real problems okay. and some real tendencies in society. You, okay. you are actually you are not wrong. Okay. Uh, and I, I suppose I was a little flippant when no, I no, said no, that no, they, no. Were, they were but, still. But flipped. I do think the lines crossed. No, no, you, you, you're totally right. And so we, we see uh, declining rates. There might of, be a causal relationship, well, by the way. We, we've seen declining rates of employment among men. Right. I think since the 1970s or 80s, give or take. Uh, you know, for, for 40 working. straight yeah, years, right. the, the total proportion of men in the workforce has gone down. And largely, it's uh, uh, an increase in those on some kind of disability or other, other uh, uh, subsidy program for, for whatever reasons. And, and getting men off of those and back to work to the degree that that's possible is, is, is immensely challenging in the clinical uh, literature. It's really, really very difficult. Um, Nick Eberstedt has been great on this, by mm-hmm. the way, especially when you add not just government, uh, but you add entertainment and screen time and, of course, opioids. Jonathan Haidt as well. Jonathan Haidt has done it as phenomenal well. Phenomenal right, on this. Right, right. Um, and, and, and so, you, you know, you're absolutely picking up on something that is that is true about our society in that uh, uh, partially it has, it has structurally... Uh, uh, begun to sort of reset the table in such a way that uh, uh, transfers resources to women, which is a good thing. Uh, interestingly, uh, another caveat, if I may, w- why might uh, society be skewed in favor of women from a protection or resource uh, movement perception? Obviously, in terms of choice autonomy, this is not the case. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the protecting of women, uh, I'm going to make the, the, the point uh, that I think is obvious to anyone on the right, but to many leftists is is something that they would perhaps not care to admit. And it is the notion that society is deeply prejudiced in favor of women against low-status men in some regards. And the reason that is, is that if in pre-modern times a bunch of us have to die, if the low-status men die, the population can rebuild. Mm-hmm. But if the women die, we are all going extinct. Mm-hmm. And so civilizationally, all of us have a much stronger ten- propensity to protect uh, 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 young women than we do young men. And so in doing so, th- th- this is why, again, still, despite our, our modern notions of equality, if you look at combat roles in the military, it's still above 90, it's 94, 95, 96 percent men, something like that. And there is a reason for that. It is ingrained to us on a physiological and psychological level. Um. Crisis in Men, Crisis with Men, Save the Males was a book of about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I want to close with uh, a couple uh, notes on that when we come right back to think on, and maybe we pick it up when we come back next week as well. I love that. Yeah, because it'll be interesting to have the generational input too 
with Hugh, who has been, you know, uh, not only married and raised boys, but part of building education institutions. The, the perspectives the three of us would have on what we laid out here would be interesting, and we'll do it when we we'll, we'll set more of the table when we come back. Portions of this show brought to you by our friends at Y-Refi. They have an investment in a secure and collateralized portfolio where you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. They invest flexibility in you. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. There is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. Of course, you get a monthly statement with no surprises. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-24, 888-YREFI-24. Scholar Mitch Perlstein writes, under normal circumstances, boys grow up and marry the women who become the mothers of their children. If, however, they reach adulthood, unable to hold a job, stay sober, or keep out of jail, they quickly find that desirable women have little interest in hitching themselves to them. In communities where marriage is vanishing, it cannot be viewed unless millions of boys and girls get their lives in decent order. Aimless or felonious men are not the only reason for the decline in marriage, but they are a sizable one. I want to quote one other um, scholar, uh, if I might, on this. Um, And by the way, this is uh, excerpted from the Book of Man by William uh, Bennett. Professor Newell writes, as a culture, we have never been more conflicted about what we mean by manhood. Underfathered young men, many from broken homes, prone to identify their maleness with aggression because they have no better model to go by. If young men are cut off from the positive tradition of manly pride, that manliness will reemerge in crude and retrograde forms. And we're seeing this, too, as a threat and challenge to relationships, Lewis. I'll let you close however you would like. Yeah, so so I, I think this all ties back into the, the, the original notion I laid out of hypergamy, right? right. The, the notice that, yes, that it does. women uh, uh, are attracted to and pursue relationships with men that are uh, either equal to or greater than they are in some sort of status hierarchy. Uh, whatever it happens yeah. to be, can be social, educational, any number. Of and things. so, yeah. the the final wrinkle here that I want to want to add before we close out today is that we're at a point that is reinforcing these these hypergamistic tendencies. We have social media and we have online dating apps, which further reinforce these tendencies. Because right. what something like Tinder becomes is a race for all women to fight over the top ten percent of men, while the bottom ninety percent are ignored. The other thing, though is the rise of things like OnlyFans, where now we don't, not, don't just have, say, 100 women competing for one millionaire, but women now have the ability to take a single sexual experience, upload that for people to see, and in doing so, not make a, a one, meet one millionaire and pursue him, yeah. but get a dollar from a million different men. And that has totally upended and totally changed the dynamics of the marketplace right now. And we have no idea what the shocks of that are going to look like. That is still reverberating and still happening. And yeah. I think it's something that maybe we pick up on yeah. next time. We're in, a, we're in an old ocean with a new boat. A brave a new rudder. world. Yeah, a, a brave, brave new, new world. world. Thank you, Lewis Holman. Thank you all. Until tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. Bill, for sitting in today. I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. And class dismissed. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.